If you take out your Bibles, Acts chapter 10 tonight, Acts 10, and this incredible passage where the gospel finally makes it to the Gentile church in the life of Cornelius. And again, remember that that Acts 1-8 outline that we have it is a picture of how the Lord intended the gospel to go out. Now, why the Lord does things the way he does them uh, at times is just simply a mystery to us. We're finite, he's infinite. He is full of all knowledge that has ever been known and can be known, and we have limited amount of knowledge. We have limited capacity even to understand things. Not just could we not have all of it in our heads at once, but even if we had it, we couldn't do anything with it. You know, so if you have a computer, remember back in the old days where everything was measured in megabytes, if you had an original computer and you maybe had a 250 megabyte hard drive and you had like 16 megabytes of RAM, do you remember those days? And it would get to where your computer was absolutely incapable of having enough working memory to actually do anything. And then it started upgrading, you know, and then we got to that place to where, yeah, my computer's got a gigabyte of RAM and it's got a, you know, 250 gigabyte hard drive. And now we're in terabytes and, you know, it's just all this incredible explosion. Well, in a much, 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 much greater way, our finite minds are incapable of processing the information that is even available in our universe, much less think of it the way God does. And so God does things sometimes in a way that we just don't understand. And this passage to me is one of those things that it's like, why didn't the gospel just go out universally instantaneously? Why didn't the Lord just, you know, spread everybody out all at once and just explode there seems to be a reason that I think we find here in Acts chapter 10 for why the Lord was establishing the Jewish church initially and then followed it up with the Gentile believers. And so we're going to get to that passage tonight. And as we pick up chapter 10, if you remember last time as we finished uh, chapter 9, we see the first couple of Peter's miracles. And if you remember, he does a great miracle. And all three component parts of the human condition are found in these three miracles. We, we find the mind, we find the body, we find the emotion, we find the spirit. And, and so as, you, as we looked at that first miracle that Peter does, he heals the body uh, of this man, Anias, who's there in Lydda, and, and he's bedridden, he's been paralyzed, and, and so he's raised up and he was sick and now he's well. And then the second miracle that he does is the woman Dorcas, a woman who uh, absolutely is a saint. She loves the Lord. She's known for doing wonderful charitable deeds, uh, but she passes away. And see, we don't allow uh, God to work the way you know, he necessarily can if we have our choice. We'll tell him, okay, well, I want this person to live this long and this person to not go through trials and tribulations and this person to never get sick. You know, as parents, we would, you know, one of our constant prayers is, God, don't let our children get sick. Lord, certainly don't take our children home before you take one of us. You know, it's like almost the, the ultimate blow to a parent. No parent should ever outlive their child. We think through things from a human level. God sees it from his perfect plans. 
And sometimes he doesn't consult with us. And so tonight we get to the greatest miracle. And of course, we go from great to greater to greatest. And really the picture here is, is why would God save anyone? You know, when you really think about it, you think about your own life, and I've said this before, I, I think of my own life and I go, you know, I'm not sure I would have saved me. I'm not sure that I would have picked me out and said, you know, I, I want Jeff to come to, to faith. I want Jeff to be saved and to spend eternity. I, I may have, you know, kind of passed over. I would have picked really nice people, really good people. But I know me, and you know you. You might pass over yourself. And so we pick up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 10, and the greatest miracle of all that Peter does, and it's being used in the life of Cornelius. And so would you pray with me? Father, again, we are so blessed to be able to be here in your house and just spend some time studying your, your word, and we are so grateful for those uh, records that you gave through the, uh, the Apostle Luke as he records these things uh, here in the book of Acts, and, and how your Holy Spirit worked in him to, to guide and direct and to put down every word that is necessary for our growth and edification. And we pray tonight that your word would speak to us in a wonderful, new, and a fresh way. Speak through the life of of Peter and speak through the life of Cornelius the centurion. God, would you bless us as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Acts chapter 10. We're going to get the whole chapter tonight. And there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment. Now, to put it into perspective, much like, you know, we have in our military, you have uh, normal service in the Army or the Air Force or Marine Corps, the Navy, the Coast Guard. You have normal service areas, but they almost always have special groups uh, of soldiers. We know Army Rangers are one, Green Beret. You, you have SEAL uh, teams. You have special operations. The Italian regiment for the Roman Army was a special detachment of soldiers they were attached generally to the movement of Caesar himself. And so the Italian regiment, this is an important group of people. Now because of where this takes place, and we'll get there in a little bit, where this takes place in Caesarea Maritima, which again is on the coast, the Mediterranean coast of modern day Israel, it would have been in the land of Judea at that time. And remember Pilate was the governor of Judea. There's actually a stone one of the most wonderful pieces of archaeological evidence that confirms, again, the, the word that we have in the Bible. Uh, when you travel to Caesarea Maritima and you're, you're there out on the peninsula where Herod's palace used to extend out into the Mediterranean Sea, um, there is a large stone and on it engraved is, this is the rule of Pontius Pilate of Judea. And it's there dated from the time uh, that these words were written. And so this was a prominent city, it was a Roman city, and because Herod was there, governor uh, ultimately over all of Judea, the ruler of Judea, he was kind of a mini Caesar if you want to look at it that way, uh, this, is, this is an important guy. And so here's this Roman centurion who is in kind of special ops uh, for, the, for the, the Roman army, um, and, and he is... This one who is also at the same time, and this is the beauty of this, because you would think if there was any group of people 
that would have very little chance of actually being a seeker of the Lord God Most High. It would be someone who's in special ops in Caesar's most dedicated group of soldiers, the Italian regiment. A devout man. In other words, he has an eye on God. He, he's concerned with the things of God. One who feared God with all of his household. And so his heritage and his fear of the Lord, his desire to honor God, is, is so well known that his own family is transformed. And I, I will tell you a little secret in ministry. When, when I'm looking and interviewing men and women that are going to be in ministry, one of the things that I look at that is the most visible to me about their own personal walk is the walk of their family. How is their family doing with the Lord? Because when the whole family is engaged in the things of the Lord, that means that mom or dad, dad or mom, have lived it in such a way that it's made it down to the kids. It means it's real. It's real in the home. You see, you can fool people out in the public square, but you can't fool your own family. And so if it's real at home, it will generally show up in the lives of the children, in the lives of the spouse. This man's family feared God as well, who gave alms generously to the people. Didn't have to do that. This is a man that the generosity uh, of God has reached out even through someone who does not yet know him. And, And the beautiful picture of this is, and you probably have people in your own life, that they're looking for the true and the living God. They haven't found him yet, but they're looking. They care about godly things. And it's a strange thing when you actually talk to people is you're going to find that more often than not, when you, when you wipe away all of the world's stuff, the junk that's going on in people's lives, you're going to find a lot of people are actually looking for the Lord. That's the way this man Cornelius was. And he prayed to God always. Now, he doesn't know exactly which God he's praying to. And the important thing is here is that God is listening to sincere prayers, provided they're seeking prayers. He's listening for that voice that's crying out to the true and the living God. And so this was Cornelius. And so we find here Peter's ministry, uh, this, this incredible time in Peter's life where he's gone from being used mightily as an evangelist. I mean, it, it would be staggering. I mean, he's, he's an unlearned man, someone who didn't go to seminary, someone who didn't study the Bible as we know it. He's being used to actually author parts of it, and yet he preaches these incredible messages where he basically offends everyone. He says, you men of Jerusalem, this Jesus whom you crucified, that's not a great way to open your message when you're dealing with Jewish people. You would think that would pretty much have caused everybody to walk away, but so powerfully was the hand of God on his life that Peter delivers this simple, very convicting message, and 3,000 people instantaneously give their life to Christ. Peter's being used of the Lord. But I would say of these miracles, healing someone's body is wonderful. Raising someone from the dead, unbelievable but seeing someone saved so that they could spend eternity with with the Lord 
is by far and away the greatest miracle that any of us could ever be engaged in. So sometimes we have a tendency to confine miracles to things that are unexplainable in in a human sense. Every person that comes to faith in Christ is really unexplainable in a human sense. Why God would allow any of us to, to come to faith and to be saved and spend eternity with him. You know, I would just, if I were God, I'd just create perfect people. You know, I'd surround myself with people who just always praise me, not people that had to be led into the presence of God, but people who were already there. So you can kind of see how the Lord works with us in our, in our weaknesses. He's not looking for us to already be complete. I think there's part of the joyous walk that we have is that the Lord actually loves us incomplete, unfinished, seeking, questioning, asking of him the strange things that you and I, as we, as we you know, maybe you talk to your children, and, and you know as a parent, very often there are, there are those questions that our kids ask, and you're, just, you're ready and willing to answer them. And then there's those ones that they ask over and over and over and over and over again that you just like, would you be done already? Don't ask me again. No, you cannot go outside in the snow in your shorts. You know, it's... You can't do it. Put your clothes on before you go out. You know, those types of things. Chapter 10 is a pivotal book because it's the beginning of the Gentile church. And what we see here actually stems from what Jesus told Peter uh, in Matthew chapter 16. If you want to turn there, let's look at those verses, verses 18 and 19, Matthew 16. And again, very familiar passage to many of us as we've studied the Bible. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And he, he says, you are, you are Petros. You are, you are a small stone. And on this rock, Petra, this larger rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. One of the easiest ways to interpret this passage is people always get hung up. And of course, the Catholic Church builds the whole papal system basically on these verses that Peter is the first pope, and that, that's why the church is built on the life of Peter, and from Peter, all the successive popes. The reason we know this is not talking about Peter is Peter was an abject failure often. If you were going to build the church on an abject failure, that would not be something that you would say, because it said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so if the rock is Peter... Then the rock failed over and over and over and over and over, and the gates of Hades did prevail against Peter at times. And so he uses these two terms, one little rock for Peter and large rock, a rock that is the cornerstone for what I believe is an inference to Christ. On this rock, Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you, notice this, Now he's speaking directly to Peter, you. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter is now using those keys. He's taken the keys that Jesus gave him. He said, there are going to be amazing things I'm going to do do through you, Peter. And Peter's now taken those keys and he's using them. It opened the door of faith. God just opens it up to the Jewish people in Acts 2. He opens it to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And he's going to be used, Peter will be now, to bring the gospel, the good news to the Gentile church. And what we find is an event that is 
quite similar, really, to what happened to the Jewish believers at Pentecost. Although it's not exactly the same situation, we're going to see that tonight. That God also worked through Peter to bring about this incredible movement of the Spirit uh, that was going to work now in, in, the, in the Gentile believers. God very often in times has transitioned his plans and used them in such a way as to do specific things at specific times. And while we can gather lots of information from the book of Acts about how the church is supposed to function, I think it is a fallacy to try and place too much of the structure that we find here in the modern church. Because God is always transitioning how we do church to meet the needs of the people that we're ministering to to in the current time. But we do see some things that I think do carry over, and we'll get those as well tonight. When God saves Saul of Tarsus, this incredible conversion experience in Acts 9, uh, he gets a hold of what is going to be his special envoy to the Gentiles which makes no sense whatsoever to us because Paul, if anyone were ever uh, the absolute perfect person to send to the Jewish people, it seems like Saul of Tarsus would be the guy. He knows everything. He, He knows very little. Matter of fact, he spent most of his life trying not to have anything to do with Gentiles. And, and yet, uh, we're going to see Saul used in that way as Paul as we, as we move on. So let's pick up here. And let's read on, and we'll go down to verse 8 now. And so to, to combine these first couple of verses, he said, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to people and prayed to God always. And about the ninth hour of the day, we pick up now in verse 3, He saw clearly a vision, in a vision, an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. So he called him by name. And when he observed him, he was afraid. And he said, what is it, Lord? You see, here's what happens when a person is genuinely seeking the Lord. When God speaks, they know it's God. That's what happens when people are speaking. They're, 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 They're listening for the things of God. And when someone speaks for the Lord, they understand that God's trying to speak to them. I have that happen fairly regularly here. People, they'll, they'll come up, you know, whether it's in the lobby or maybe, you know, on a, some weekday and they've heard a message and they'll go, man, it was just like you were speaking to me. You know, God was speaking to me, he, to you. He just used my lips to do it. Because he had a word for you and he knew what to put in my heart. And with the thousands of people that were there on Sunday, he had a word specifically for you. And so he just simply spoke those things to you. And very often they'll say, man, it was just like the Lord just, you know, busted me on this or, or convicted me on that or, or, you know, just convinced me that he had been speaking to me about some ministry opportunity and boom, it happens just like that. And continuing on there in the second half of verse 4. And so he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa. Now remember, they're at Caesarea Maritima, which is about 65 miles from Jerusalem and about 30 miles north on the coast. So Joppa is in the south. Lida is slightly below that, about 9 or 10 miles. And so these are coastal cities. They're linked. And so this is a city that's about 30 miles south on the coast from uh, from Caesarea. 
and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. Uh, and, he, and he's lodging with Simon. So there's two Simons in this story. Going to send for Simon, whose surname is Peter, and he's lodging with another guy named Simon. Simon was a Cephas. It's another name for Peter. So Peter's lodging with Peter. A tanner, whose house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel spoke to him and had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who had waited on him continually so that he had explained all these things to them and they sent them to Jaffa. And so now he's going to send this group on a journey down to Jaffa. Now this is going to be at least a two-day journey, maybe a three, might even been a four-day journey. It really kind of depends. Now, if you can imagine, uh, I, I don't know how many of you have ever had the opportunity to try and go hiking in flip-flops. Um, that's about the best footwear that they would have had back in those days. So, you know, you're not going to cover a lot of ground in some slippers, you know. You, it's just not going to happen too much. And so they're, they're walking down the road. They're going to head down this coastal route, uh, which would have been used by the, the caravans, the traders that would have traded at the port cities and then gotten goods. They would have normally traveled, just to give you a little, a little picture of the coast there, is they would have traveled from the port city of Caesarea. They would have traveled normally down to Jaffa, and then from Jaffa they would have gone to Jerusalem. So this is a normal route of travel, so it's well-traveled. Uh, it would have been a place that you would have commonly found people making this journey. And, and it, as you look at this, it's kind of, to me, sometimes when I, when I think of this passage... I don't know if anybody else does this, but there are times when I, I kind of, I think of the way God works. It's like, God, why don't you, why aren't you in a hurry with this? You know, I'm in a hurry with this. Could you like just get after it a little bit? Because, you know, there's, there's things going on and we need to see these people saved or there's something that I've got pretty well in my mind's eye that God should do. And I'm like, hurry up. But it, in this passage, it's like, God's in no big hurry. He's just working at his pace. And so this first Gentile uh, begins to, to really get the picture. A normal Roman cohort, this, this man is a very important man. He, he's, he seems to be the centurion that's in charge. A centurion would be a, one that's in charge of 100. Uh, a Roman co- cohort that's assigned to him would have been 600 men. That's a tenth part of a legion, which is 6,000. And so this is an important guy. And so he now begins to to see this purposeful preparation as God works in his life and this heavenly visitor arouses Cornelius and, and speaks into his life. And we're going to see the beginning of this incredible flow of Gentile believers into the church, which makes no sense whatsoever in the way that God does it for us humanly. Uh, for us, we would have just you know seen... God just minister with the Jewish people. After all, they had known God for, for millennia, really. They, by this time, they had had the law for over 1,500 years. They'd been in the land for over 1,000 years. You would have think, you know, it just would have kind of filtered through the Jewish people, and it would have been almost a, a very exclusive club because they would have had the easiest understanding uh, of who this Christ really was. And so... Here at Caesarea, and these are photos from our last trip. Caesarea is this beautiful port city. Um, it actually was a deep water port that Herod had built, and so they could actually bring ships from the Mediterranean inside a protected harbor. 
Uh, there's an amphitheater there that they actually still use for performances, you know, Luciano Pavarotti, and, you know, a lot, do a lot of operas and stage plays there, and some beautiful amphitheaters right on the sea. Uh, Herod's Palace uh, hung out actually on this little peninsula that you kind of see in that picture, uh, just... Uh, to the what would be your right side, my left side, just to that side is the beginnings of the outside of Harris, Herod's palace and extended all the way out. He actually had an ocean water swimming pool, uh, which is actually still visible there. Uh, incredible. The stone that I was telling you about is actually at a little monument it's just out of the picture uh, towards those colonnades on the very right-hand side. There's a, there's a plaque there, and it, there's a stone that announces that it was at that time that... Uh, that Pilate was the governor of Judea. It also was the home of one of two and only two in all of the Middle East Hippodrome. So that's, you know, if you've ever watched Ben-Hur and you've watched the chariot races, uh, that very large space you see in the center of that photo, that's looking the opposite direction. You're looking towards the port city of Acre. And in the background, that's a Muslim uh, city, and actually that's the the direction that all of the state buildings would have been in. And so uh, here, this this man's an important guy. I mean, they've got chariot races, and they've got a theater, and they've got all this stuff going on. So, so Cornelius, in that sense, is exactly the right guy because he's a man of influence. He's a man of power. He's a man that actually can control kind of how the Romans are going to respond to to the way that the gospel goes forth. And and he is a God-fearing man. And so we see really three things in these these first few verses about Cornelius. The Holy Spirit kind of underlines them for us. The first thing was his faith. He was already a man of faith. When you come to faith in Christ, as a general rule, most people have already begun to explore some area of faith in their life. When you talk to people, yeah, I was was searching for this, I was into Buddhism, or I was into Hinduism, I was into New Age, they're they're looking, they're just expressing that faith, but they don't really know which way to go. And that was how Cornelius was. He was a devout man and a guy who feared God. As I shared with you, when you know we have our team still, they'll actually be traveling back from El Salvador. One of the things that's an interesting thing there, you have all these, you know, these gang members of MS-13. They are absolutely afraid of God, and so they're consequently afraid of God's people. They think that you know we have an inroad with God, and so you know they they may be gang members and they're carrying automatic weapons, but they're more afraid of God than they are of people with automatic weapons, and so. There's a road, there's a place that you can get to their heart because they're already fearing the Lord. Now, it may not be the right kind of fear. It may not be saving faith yet, but they're going the right direction. And that's the way Cornelius was. He was a devout man. He feared God. And, of course, the Romans worshipped a pantheon. So they had this, you know, he probably worshipped Romulus, the god of war. He had, you know, there's all kinds of things going on in his life. So his life was messed up, but God honored what he did know. And God honored what he did pray. And God listened to him for where he was in life. God holds us responsible for the knowledge that we have, not the knowledge we don't have. God holds us responsible for the knowledge we have, not the knowledge we don't have. And so as we open our hearts up, as Cornelius opens up his heart, God says, this man is a man of faith. And so all of a sudden, the, the parts start to come together for him. A second thing. Mentions his family. 
He's a family guy. First is his faith. The second is his family. He feared God with all of his house. And and it's interesting that a veteran soldier, a hardened guy, uh, rigorous in school, would still focus on God. You know, why he would do that, this this shows you where this guy's heart is. He, He may have been tough on the outside, but on the inside he was soft. Just like the faith of Abraham, just like the the God of the Hebrew people. He'd been able to get into those hard spots and soften them. And so his family was affected by his living. And he wasn't worshiping the pagan gods of Rome or the pagan gods of Greece. He was really seeking the true and the living God. And so he begins to kind of worship the Jewish God. And remember, there are only three monotheistic religions, religions that worship that there is exactly one God. There's only three of them in the entire world to this day. That's biblical Christianity. That, that would be us. That's Judaism, the Jewish people, and Islam. That's the only three. So this man is in the middle of a pagan environment that worships many gods, and somehow he's focused in on the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, by the way, is the right God. It's a real God. And so he had a little window into the heart of God. And a third thing, he mentions the fervor, uh, the, the zeal with which this man lived his life already. In other words, he, he's, he's giving alms. He, he prayed to God all the time. He, he was constantly, seemingly, as, as you look at what's going on in his life, he was concerned about, about God. And so God can use a heart like that. And he was generous in his acts of charity. And you're going to find that you're going to bump into people that they're almost there. Anybody know any people that are almost there? We call them, you know, they're nearly Christians, you know, kind of thing. I know people like that. It's like, just take the step. Give your life to Jesus. You're almost there. You know, you kind of look at them and you're like, it's like, man, why don't you know? There's just, there's something going on. Well, God knows the right time and the right place and the right person to send to those people in your life that are almost there. And sometimes that person, by the way, might be you. So be looking for those people who are like that. This man was disciplined in his devotional life. He he prayed regularly. There's all kinds of good things going on. And and angels, and and I want to focus in on this for just a second, Angels are messengers, but they're messengers for your good, for humankind's good. Angels do not preach the gospel directly. They minister to people, but sharing the gospel is a responsibility that God's given us. He passed, Jesus passed the light along to, the, to people. And so the angels say, hey, you need to go do this. And Cornelius is convicted and convinced to go do it, but it's going to be... Peter, who's going to come back with the message. You see, the angels could have said, well, here's the gospel in a nutshell. But God's given us that responsibility, given us that right, given us that privilege. And as close as Cornelius was to Judaism, he was like right there. And so he was ready to receive the good news. How many people in your life are ready to receive the good news? You'd be surprised when you talk to people. Very often, in fact, I'll say, yeah, I was just waiting for it. You'll hear it. So I was just waiting for somebody to tell me what it means to be a believer. 
And you've known that person for 10 years. You've known that person for five years. You've been working with them for a couple of years. And, and then you find out, yeah, they just gave their life to Jesus. And you missed an opportunity to be used of the Lord because you didn't think they were right there. Never underestimate where people might be in, in, in that desire for a relationship with the Lord. Our goal is to just simply preach the gospel to them. Let them know what the truth is. We're going to find out next that Cornelius was absolutely seeking the Lord. He was a seeker. He he was constantly asking God. Notice verse 9. And the next day, when they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. And so now Peter's down in Jaffa. So they're coming from from up in Caesarea. And they're traveling down along the coast. And it's about the the sixth hour. So they're, they're in the afternoon. Starts at six. So this is... This is in the afternoon. It's about noonday, and he's up on the roof. It's cooler up there, a little ocean breeze in his face. And if you travel to uh, Simon the Tanner's house today, it has a beautiful overlook over the harbor uh, there in Jaffa, a uh, little hill behind it, and the beautiful little quaint streets that are probably much like they were in this time. Uh, and he became very hungry, and he wanted to eat. God uses the normal circumstances of life, often divinely. I can't even tell you how many times I've sat down on a plane or sat down in a restaurant or I've been, you know, in some lounge waiting to take off on a flight or somewhere along the journey and God uses something as simple as me being hungry to bring me to the place that he wants me to speak to somebody. Happens all the time. Don't underestimate God's ability to do that. and He does that here. Peter's very hungry and he wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Now, he's, he's in a food coma. He is super hungry. I mean, this, he's like famished. He's ready to die. He's like, you know, he's like a hobbit. He's like first breakfast, second breakfast. He's looking at third breakfast or something. And he saw heaven in it, and, and it opened. And an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descending to him. And and it let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals on the earth, wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Now imagine, this is a Hebrew man. Number one, you can't eat anything with blood in it. And he's being told to rise and kill. It kind of sounds like this was like honey-baked ham to me. I mean, this is pretty much the Lord getting in his face. It's like, whatever was in there, Peter obviously didn't want it. And Peter said, no, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. So he goes both ways. He says, not common things that other, you know, I, I, I'm kosher. I mean, this stuff needs to be blessed by a rabbi. I'm not eating this. And a voice spoke to him again a second time and says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now, there's a spiritual lesson in all this, so hang on a second. Because you see, from Peter's perspective, he still has some prejudice. He's still looking at this from a Jewish perspective. And while the Jewish faith is wonderful in pointing us to the Lord, you can see Christ in all of the Hebrew feasts. It's a clear picture of Messiah. Peter hadn't quite gotten there, and so he's still kind of hanging on a little bit to his Jewishness, and he's saying, look, I just can't do it. 
And so God's going to give them a little extra instruction. And this was done three times. So this blanket with all kinds of stuff that Peter's saying, I'm not eating. I don't care how good that bacon wrap filet looks. I'm not doing it. The object was taken up after three times into heaven again. And now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And so during this intervening time, God's using Peter's hunger to kind of to prepare him for what is going to happen spiritually. He's using a physical thing, life circumstance, to minister to him, to open up his mind, to get him thinking about, okay, there's stuff that God calls clean, and there's stuff that God calls unclean, and I don't want to be associated with the unclean things. Wasn't there a group of people from a Jewish perspective on the face of the earth that the Jewish people called unclean? Guess who they were? The Gentiles. And guess who this contingent is representing the Gentiles. And so God's using a circumstance, a a very powerful one, by the way. When you're hungry, kind of nothing else matters. I mean, we've got a few people in our family, when they're hungry, just get out of the way, because you may lose an arm or a leg. Just like, don't do it. But what's happening here is Peter is being prepared even through the circumstances of life and living for what God wants to do spiritually with them. And there they are. They stood before the gate, and, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, so get this, the reality is these guys have been sent by the Lord. They're at the gate, but Peter's still thinking about the vision. It's like in his head, God's gotten to him. He said, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I've sent them. So do you see the spiritual connection now? He said, Look, Peter, you, you just got done seeing this blanket come down from heaven with, you know, a nice fat honey baked ham in it and some shrimp, you know, some things you can't eat. But I'm telling you, rise and kill and eat. And you're worried about whether they're clean or unclean. And I'm telling you, don't call unclean that which i have made clean and now there's some other unclean folks standing outside your gate and i want you to go and do exactly what they ask you to do and he's just like you can imagine how the lord is setting up peter's heart to have a change of heart he he's he's got a mindset that's still stuck with him isn't it cool how god breaks up that fallow ground of our heart prejudices we once held you know maybe for you it's just certain types of people There are certain people that we gravitate towards, certain people that we would say, nah, I don't think I'd ever really talk to that person. Sometimes it's different social groups. Sometimes it's different racial groups. It might be all kinds of things that the Lord would use in our lives to break down those walls and say, look, Jeff, I want you to go talk to them. Well, no, I don't want to, Lord. I mean, come on. You know me. I'm not that type of guy. He's saying, look, I I want you to do what I want you to do. I'm not asking your opinion. I'm telling you this is what I have for you. A little secret to your Christian life, do what God asked. Because he's going to keep asking, and he's going to keep prodding, he's going to keep knocking, he's going to keep telling you this is what I have for you. And so you're better to give in at the beginning and save yourself all kinds of grief 
and watch the Lord work in your life. And, and Peter said, and he went down to the men who had sent, been sent for him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And he said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, the one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Now, do you think a devout Jewish man is going to listen to the words of a Roman centurion who supposedly has a vision unless God's doing something in his heart? The answer is no, there's just no way. Peter, if he had not been prepared by this vision, he wouldn't have even been open to hearing these words. He would have, he would have probably said something like, yeah, sure. This is a setup, right? You want me to go hang out with the Roman centurion? Now, I, I know a bad plan when I see one. But Cornelius was asking God for the way of salvation, and, and Peter was being prepared to be that way. And I, I kind of liken this. John Wesley, the founder of the, of the Wesleyan Methodist Church, um, wasn't exactly on a road to, to greatness in the kingdom. He was a member of the Oxford Club, which is a religious club, and it was supposedly founded to kind of make sure that people lived a Christian life, even though they weren't necessarily Christians. But he, he began to serve as a foreign missionary, and he was a foreign missionary before he was even saved. He had no personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but because he had been cajoled into going into the mission field, because it was the right thing to do, he went. And in 1738, he's reluctantly attending a small meeting in London, and there's a guy that pulls out Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Now bear in mind, at this time, again, you had these two opposing camps. You had the Arminian camp and the Calvinist camp, and they're battling, they're fighting. One emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the other the responsibility of man. He has no idea where he's going to be at. And Wesley wrote in his journal about that, he says, about a quarter before nine in the evening. He said, while he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I actually trusted Christ. Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given to me that he would take away my sins, even mine, and save me from the law of sin and death. You see, here's a man who's already a missionary, who's in a religious school, he's doing all the right things, but his heart really was just simply being prepared to hear a message that was preached previously by Martin Luther from a book. But his heart was ready. Don't underestimate how God can work in the hearts of people to prepare them to talk to you. You may have the word for them. God may send you to the, to the next John Wesley. May send you to the next Cornelius. And as a result of that, the Wesleyan revival sweeps through England. The Methodist church is born. The holiness movement, movement is born. Some reforms within Arminianism take place. And what God was doing was actually seeking the lost. Honoring real prayers that, that John Wesley, real prayers that Cornelius had offered. He'd sent that angel to instruct just the way he'd sent the angel here in our passage. You, you see, from the law of Moses on, and the book of Ephesians tells us this in chapter 2, there had been a wall that had been erected 
and, and it was the law. Basically, the law kind of put this food thing in the way. There, there was absolutely a, a, an issue with eating unclean things. And that became kind of the excuse stumbling block. Well, I can't hang out with those people because they're unclean. I can't talk. I can't go to the house of that person because they're unclean. I can't do anything with them because they're unclean. And so the law, which was good, ends up getting in the way of doing the right thing. God doesn't intend for us to do that. That's why legalism is the bane to the church. Because you have people who know what the law says, but they use the law in an unlawful way. Because it's not being used for the glory of God. It's being used to continue separation when God has torn down the wall of separation. He did it with Jesus on the cross. And so in this passage, what Peter learns is the Jew was not clean and the Gentile unclean. They were both unclean before God without Christ. He's learning a new lesson. It's like, man, the law can't save me. It never could. The sacrifices can't save me. They never could. Even on the Day of Atonement, your sins were put away. They weren't actually totally forgiven. They were just simply dealt with for a period of time. And then you'd commit some more, and they'd be stored up for the next year. You'd be waiting for the Day of Atonement to come around on the next Yom Kippur. The next great fall feast. Those ten days of awe, and you'd be waiting. It's like, oh, I can't wait. I'll finally be okay with God for ten seconds. And so... Peter goes to the door and he's forced into a situation that he would not have chosen for himself. Now we kind of see the why. He gets this marvelous explanation. Verse 23, and then he invited them in and and lodged with them. And then on the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Jaffa and accompanied him. And the following day, they entered into Caesarea. And so they've walked now for two days They've gone to Caesarea. They've they've gone pretty much to the most Roman place that you could go and still be on the Mediterranean coast. So we went from a primarily Jewish city to a primarily Gentile city that was the seat of Roman government. It had Herod's palace. It's like this is not where good Jewish men would go. It certainly isn't even where Christians would want to go. So there's nothing attractive about this city. And now Cornelius was waiting for them. I love this because Cornelius is really seeking for God. And he called them together and his relatives and his close friends. You see what's happened? In preparing Cornelius' heart, Cornelius is gathering a whole bunch of other people. I have had the privilege of leading, this sounds crazy, entire families to faith in Christ all at once. It's like grandma and grandpa and sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles and cousins. I have sat down with people and they're all, they start talking. It's like, yeah, I want to receive Christ too. Because the Lord has been working in each one of those lives at different points of time, in different places and in different ways. And they all come together in one place. And here's, this is happening with Cornelius and his relatives and close friends. And as Peter is coming in, Cornelius meets him and falls down at his feet and worshiped him. Now, of course, Peter doesn't want that. And he says, Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, for I myself am also a man. 
And as he talked with them, he went in and found many who had come together. So here's Cornelius. He's not even saved. And he's out gathering people. He's got you got to hear the message. You've you got to come listen to what, you, you need to know this. This is a need to know thing. And so he brings them together and he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company or even to go to one of another nation that was forbidden. So Cornelius sees exactly what was being done in Peter's life back in Joppa. He says, like, here's his blanket coming up and down with all these unclean things on it. And Cornelius is going, yeah, I got the same picture. This can't happen. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. You see how he already knows the truth? It's actually already in his heart. It's already there. All he needs is the gospel. And therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent. And then, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered in the sight of God, and send therefore to Jaffa, and call Simon here. His surname is Peter. And Peter's going, Wow, that's weird. Like, Seriously? He's lodging at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he'll speak to you. And so I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. And now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded to you by God. In other words, God set this whole thing up. We're here. Preach the gospel to us. Now, I don't know about you. That's what we call a ripe audience. That's like people who really want to hear the message. I had an email a couple of weeks ago from my friend Victor Marks, and they were kind of talking about what was going on in Iraq, and he'd come back, and he was in a prison, he was sharing. And it's very common that he would go in and share his story of what God's done in his life, and he's there in a you know, in an institution, and he's praying with these guys, and, you know, 75% of them, because they're in prison, they're like, I need to know Jesus. God even works in prison. God works in Iraq. God works in those battlefield situations. He gathers people together. And so in this picture, we have this explanation of what's going on, and, and in it we see some incredibly important truths some things that we can lay hold of. You see, for centuries, the Jewish people had basically said, we're God's chosen people, which was right, it's true. God actually said that to them. God's chosen people. But they had taken it so far as to be exclusive. It's like, we're God's people, and you're not. And we're something before God that you can't ever be. They would become exclusionary. It's a, you can't be us. And God didn't intend that because salvation came to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. It was supposed to be that the Jewish people, which is exactly, by the way, what God did. Amen? First century church is made up of Jewish people. That's now going to the Gentiles. So God kept his word even though man was unfaithful with it. God still kept his word. 
And so the Jewish people had been referring to the Gentiles as dogs. They were unclean. There's just no way that they'd ever be found in a, in a Gentile's home. And here Peter has not just come to a Gentile home, but he's come to the home of a centurion. He's come to a guy who's he holds political office. I mean, it, it's, it's about the worst it could get as far as defaming your character as a Hebrew man by hanging out with a Roman centurion after you get the vision of pork in your house. You know, it's like, it's like what else could go wrong today from a Hebrew perspective? But everything was going incredibly right from God's perspective. Sometimes what seems wrong from our perspective is very right from God's perspective. He's doing something we don't quite understand. We don't quite get it. That's where faith comes in. You need to trust that God is at work in our lives. He does things that we don't understand. And so a few important truths here as we kind of wrap this up tonight. The first one is a completely false idea because you see, Cornelius had witnessed religion. He had witnessed pagan pantheism, both Roman and Greek, because they were kind of interconnected at that time. So he had, he had witnessed that. He had witnessed the legalism of Judaism that was exclusionary. And, and that wasn't bringing people where they needed to be. You see, all roads don't lead to heaven. There's only one way. There's only one truth. We already saw in chapter 4 and verse 12, there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. It's that John 14, 6 command of the Lord. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one, there isn't another way to God. And you see, what's happening is all those other ways, which had been tried by this Roman centurion, had proven fruitless, had proven to be failures. And now God was showing them the real truth. So never underestimate the fact that when people have been in other religions, that they're actually being readied for the truth. That's why sometimes when you talk to someone who is a Muslim, you talk to someone who's been in a cult of lots of different flavors. They already know the lies. They already know the fact that it doesn't work. They feel the emptiness. They've actually been prepared by God for you to tell them the truth. So tell them the truth. Tell them the simple gospel. Don't lie to them and say, well, you know, all roads lead to heaven. That universalist view that says, well, you know, the God Allah and the God Yahweh are the same. That is a lie from the pit of hell. They're not the same. Because Allah is capricious. He does not care about humankind. There is no way of salvation. And yet, Jesus Christ, God's own Son, whom Islam says God has no Son. It's one of the tenets of the, of the Muslim faith, is God has no Son. So if there's only one name, and they're supposed to be the same God, they got two totally different views, amen? They both can't be right. And so this man, Cornelius, has dabbled in religion, and so he's ready for the truth. The second thing is the Savior seeks people. 
He's going to find every sinner every time that's seeking Him. Don't underestimate the seeking aspect of this. The Savior seeks lost sinners, and lost sinners seek the Savior. It's glorious when they come together. When the seeker who's looking for the Lord finds the seeking Savior, it's a match made in heaven. Because here's what you find in this passage. The Savior was seeking Cornelius, and Cornelius was seeking the Savior. They were wanting the same thing. That's why when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and, and reminds us that, look, we're saved by grace through faith, it's the same for everybody. There isn't some other way. It's just a Jesus who's seeking us. And a third thing, Peter's privileged in this passage to, to be preaching to an already hungry congregation. You know, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the things that we do here in a practical sense. If the family's okay with it, we preach the gospel at weddings and funerals. Because they're coming, they're coming to a church, and a lot of times they're actually prepared to hear some kind of religious, like I said today, don't say speech, but speech. They're they're, going to hear, they think they're going to hear a religious speech, so why not take the opportunity for the prepared ground and give them the gospel? Give them the simple gospel and say, look. You may be here, maybe you came here on, you know, because you knew this person who's now gone. Well, you can't do anything for this, this tent that's here with us. But there is something you can do about you. Peter was preaching to an already hungry congregation. If you wrap this up, there's a powerful proclamation at the end of it. And then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. So he gets the message of the blanket. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. He's not saying that every type of righteousness saves. He says that all righteousness comes from God. And when God puts that righteousness in your heart, it's the same for everybody. There's not a Jewish righteousness and a Gentile righteousness. There's not a, you know, an Arab righteousness and an Anglo-Saxon righteousness. There's one kind of righteousness and all that righteousness comes from God. And a word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You can see it. <laughs> Look, righteousness comes to everybody the same way. And Jesus Christ is the Lord. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all of Judea and began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached. You remember the picture? He was preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness, Right? He says, look, I'm not willing to tie his... I'm unworthy to have him tie my sandals. Repent, therefore, and be baptized. And it began there in Galilee after the baptism of John and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by by the devil for which... God was with him. And so he's, again, he's just preaching a simple gospel message to this crowd that's already been prepared. They're all sitting there waiting with rapt attention, bated breath. It's like, tell us the truth. We're here to hear the truth. Healing those who were oppressed. God was with them. For we are witnesses of all the things which he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. 
And him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. You see the basic gospel. That's all he's sharing. It's not some fancy oration. He's not pulling out commentary. He's just telling the story as it is. God raised him up and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God. Even us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. He says, God didn't show him to everybody. He showed us to some, and guess what? I'm one of them. I saw him. Ate with him. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets, prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sin. Simple, articulate, gospel message. Now instead of a primarily Jewish audience, a primarily Roman audience of Gentiles. And notice how the gospel isn't changed. The gospel is exactly the same. It was the same gospel that was preached to the Jewish people just a few weeks earlier. And they got saved. And he basically says, look, the, the evidence of a changed heart is a changed life. That's what happens to us. In his previous sermons, Peter laid the blame, if you will, the physical act And while it was not the Jewish people's blame that Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was my fault Jesus hung on the cross. It was not the Jewish people's fault. I put Jesus on the cross, and so did you. That's the reason Jesus went to the cross. But physically, yes, Annas, Caiaphas, they were responsible for the plot, and so Peter makes note of that. He says, look, we had a hand in this. And so now he says, look, it wasn't even you. But whoever believes in him shall have remission of sin. He gives them the bad news. He gives them the good news. When you give the bad news, you need to give the good news. The good news is Jesus Christ saves. That's the good news. And he uses a word that I think is is beautiful. It's whosoever or whoever believes. Look, whoever believes is saved. It's that simple. It's still that simple. And so as you think on this powerful proclamation that comes, you you see, while Peter was speaking, we see it finishes with this divine interruption. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard. He didn't even get to finish his message. That's how powerful the gospel is. I have had this very thing happen in my life. I'm in the, I've got it in my head. I've got, it, I, I've got the message mapped out. I know where I'm going. You know, it's like they'll tell me their story, and I'll begin to you know, just think on some things that I can share with them. And I, you know, I've got a couple of analogies and stuff that you know, I'm just waiting, and I'm working through it. And, and they're like, well, I want to I, I know Jesus right now. But wait, I'm not done preaching. Could you let me finish? And that happens right here to Peter. Well, he's still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. What word? The gospel. That was it. It wasn't a message. It was just the gospel. It's like boom, boom, boom. Here it is. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. This is what happens if you believe in him. Simple. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. 
Now you know why those guys were sitting there watching, because you know what? If they had heard this from Gentile people, they wouldn't have believed. But Peter, being a Jew, brings along the testimony of Jewish witnesses who said, yeah, well, he was really struggling with the whole food thing, okay? Wasn't sure he was going to come. And as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard him speak with tongues and magnify God. Heard them speak. And again, the word here translated tongue is dialectus. And so they're speaking in, in a language, and they're hearing in another language. So you have likely Roman, Latin, you may have Aramaic, you could have Hebrew, you might have Greek. They're all speaking and they're hearing, and so they're testifying of what's going on there. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord and they asked him to stay a few days. And so here's this incredible picture of this one guy who's seeking the Lord and divine interruption comes in the middle of the message. Everybody gets saved and he says, okay, well, we're going to go baptize all of you down in the harbor. Can anyone refuse water? Let, let's, let's go baptize. Let's make a public spectacle, spectacle of the faith that these men, these women have expressed. And as you think on this, you can kind of see how that great commission, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I command you, for lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That great commission still stands. And so that outline in Acts 1.8 now is complete. It's gone to Jerusalem. It's gone to Judea. It's gone to Samaria. It now is beginning to go out to all of the uttermost because this is a port city. And so the word breaks out in Caesarea Maritima and the gospel goes out. And because of that, we're all here. Because by and large, most of us are of Gentile stock. Few of us are Hebrew. But by and large, we come from all over Europe and Asia, from Africa, from every continent. We're, we're, a, we're a very, very, very rich cultural diversity when you think of it that way. But almost entirely Gentile. And so the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. Because through the word getting out in that port city, guess what happened? Every single ship that left the port probably had a Christian or two on it. And every single one of those ships, when it landed, a couple more people got saved on the other end. And then whatever port city that was, a couple people got on another boat, and they went to Rome, and then to Spain, and then to the outer reaches, which by this time, by the way, the Roman Empire reached to Scotland. So truly, the uttermost parts of the world. God knew exactly what he was doing by reaching somebody that we probably would have said, nah, don't bother, he's a centurion. That's how good our God is, amen? Now the worship team come back up and we're going to close in song. I apologize, this is a long passage of scripture. I kind of wanted to finish it. So we're a few minutes late, but I do want to make an opportunity for you to both be prayed for and also, if you're here tonight, you don't know the Lord. Uh, you just heard the gospel message. Jesus Christ, God's own Son, 
came to this world. He was the sinless Lamb of God, the one that John the Baptist prophesied would come, the one who would take away the sin of the world. He did that. He was tried. He was found guilty of crimes he did not commit. He was put to death. He was laid in, a, in, the, in the grave exactly as Isaiah said, in the grave of the rich, not the grave of the wicked. He was a criminal as far as the Roman government was concerned, but he was buried in a rich man's tomb. That was prophesied. Those truths, you, you just simply can't deny it. And so that gospel that Peter was preaching, I preached to you tonight. And so maybe your heart got prepared, your heart got stirred. We're going to have pastors up front as we start this final song tonight. There are going to be pastors up front. Now, if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, just like these people did inside of Cornelius' home, you're here tonight not by accident. Your heart got prepared. And so you need to do some business with God tonight. Don't leave without the Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. The Lord, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And God, it is that privilege that we have tonight of most of us who are in this place just simply professing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we do that now and we do that willingly. One day, every knee will bow. Right now, our knees already bow. And we declare that to the world. And we pray, God, that if there's anyone here tonight who does not know you, that this simple presentation of the gospel, that you, Jesus, are the only way, the only truth, the only life, and no one can come to God the Father except through Jesus the Son, that that is made evident tonight. And, Lord, you yourself said that if you will believe in me, you will be saved. And so, Lord, we ask that you would convince of that gospel message tonight as we close. Would you bless us with your presence as believers in our lives? Would we be looking for the Corneliuses whose lives have been prepared already? Would we look at the circumstances of life in a way that we know that you are working in every detail of life, preparing the way? And so, God, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you would bless us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.